0: Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Punk and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Happy New Year. Welcome back to another episode on Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Dr. Dana Punk. The CCIM podcast team are taking a little break for the month of January, but rest assured, we've got you covered with two throwback episodes. Today, we are replaying the interview with Dr. Kate Closer, who has been to the Antarctica and practiced polar medicine. Also, please keep tuning in every two weeks because we have exciting new episodes planned for 2024. Enjoy! Enjoy!
1: Hello and welcome again to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey and if you're new to the podcast, in this series we chat with doctors and health professionals who forge all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. My guest in this episode is Dr. Kate Klodzer who, as I record this, is preparing to spend her fifth winter on an Australian Antarctic research base. As you'll hear in this chat, Kate has a truly inspiring passion for Antarctica and for the work she does with the Australian Antarctic Division. Kate has served as a sole doctor on different expeditions on each of Australia's four permanent Antarctic and sub-Antarctic research stations for periods of up to around 12 months at a time. She explains in this conversation what gives her the confidence to be able to take on that kind of a challenge in such often inhospitable environments, and she describes the beauty of the region that keeps her going back. Her next trip at this stage is due to be setting sail in January next year, and I spoke with her from her home in WA. Before we get to that, though, I do have a quick important uh, update on the CCOM 2020 conference, which has, of course, been postponed until December this year due to COVID-19. Now, if you've not already seen, this event will now be going ahead as a virtual event only. It will still be happening in December on those two days, the 12th and 13th, but it's a virtual event now. The CCO team are really disappointed. That they won't be able to have you all there in person, but they have put in place a range of measures to ensure it will still be incredibly fun, informative, inspiring, an invigorating event, and that's including a keynote address from Dr. Carl Krasnicki. So if you've not already registered, head over to the CCIM page, that's creativecareersinmedicine.com. Follow the links to the events page where you can purchase your ticket. And while you're there, if you've not already signed up as a member, you can learn all about the CCIM membership program and all the benefits that come with that. So on to our interview. It was an absolute pleasure Speaking with Dr. Kate Closer, I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Dr. Kate Closer, thank you so much for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast.
0: Ah, awesome. Thank you very much for, for having me. Um, great to be talking with you.
1: Now, you. Uh, I'm so glad and excited to, to have you on, um, especially for you haven't been able to make the time for us to know how busy you are. I understand you're in WA at the moment having just completed or still completing a quarantine period since returning from Tasmania where you've um, been spending some time working with the Australian Antarctic Division in preparation for your next expedition, which at this stage is still um, supposed to be happening early next year. Um, Obviously, COVID's um, shaken up everyone's lives to some degree. I imagine it's, it's created some fairly, you know, huge and unique uh, logistical challenges for you and your colleagues. Can you talk us through what the last few months have been like for you?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so, like everybody, else, I've had to uh, adapt and change my my work um, due to COVID. Um, so, one of the big things for us with the preparation for our training was actually just even whether we could get to Hobart. Yeah. The usual uh, pre-departure for the polar meds, um, the polar medicine unit is uh, all the doctors that are going south will go over for a block of training at the Antarctic Division that covers everything from introductions to particular polar medicine topics like cold injury, hypothermia, um, as well as getting familiar with our logistics systems. Um, our medical documentation system, taking x-rays, um, as well as the logistics of how we actually manage our pharmaceuticals and, and medical equipment, mm-hmm. um, plus some dental training. But with COVID and the travel restrictions, that was was quite a challenge to get us down. There. So a lot of work was done by the unit um, in order to get us there for that training and get that usual training delivered.
1: So you're based in WA usually. I know you um, sort of do a lot of travelling, but you you're generally based in WA.
0: I have been yeah the last couple of years. Right. Um, I've I've been in rural WA yeah.
1: <laughs> so where how do you get to a point in your life where you're doing? Because this isn't going to be your first expedition. This is how um, many how many how many will this make it? The the one that you you're slated for for next year.
0: This could be my fifth winter, fifth um, winter. down in Antarctica. Right.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. how do you, you get to that point? <laughs> okay. So, what was I mean? If we can rewind a little bit, what was your personal journey? You know, in in medicine, like how did you like what was the you know what was your original sort of inspiration or ambition that that you had in wanting to become a doctor?
0: Um. Yeah, <laughs> so no, it, it wasn't to be a, a power doctor. I didn't even really know that was a thing um, until I was a, a few years into um, my postgraduate training. Um, so originally, I wanted to go into medicine um, after reading Catherine Hamlin Hospital by the River, yeah. um, very much wanted to aid work and become an obstetrician and gynecologist. And then as I went through medical school, it sort of changed and evolved with, I thought maybe I'd want to do surgery. Um, so in my junior doctor years, was doing a lot of those rotations and right. then, as often happens, when you're doing lots of long nights and you're a bit tired, you start Googling around going, let's have a bit of a break, let's see what else is out there. And I'd heard about Jurisdip doctors um, going to Antarctica and that sounded amazing. And while I was looking at that, I came across the Antarctic um, Division's advertisement for the jobs for the season. And was like, "Holy oh, smoke, oh, you can go down to this place for a year and be yep. the doctor? That's awesome!" <laughs> um, and so, put my application in, um, and was very fortunate um, to get the gig um, and, so this and get through. Down. Still and,
1: quite early on in your training, <laughs> by the sounds of it.
0: This is yeah. So um, I was, oh gosh, I, I'm Pvy whatever now. So it always takes me a bit to remember. <laughs> I think by the time I went down, it was something like PGY-4. Right. Um, so I'd done my internship and then two years as a pre-surgical training um, RMO and then within my third year um, where I was doing um, a year of ED so I was trying to decide do I want to do surgery or ED and it was at that point that, that I got the job to go south. Yeah.
1: Right. So what was – I mean – we had you always always had any sort of interest in in, in polar expeditions and, and and this kind of thing. Was that there is a lot of you know for 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 a lot of people there's a bit of a romantic idea about it. it. Has that sort of frontier feel to it? Is that something that part of what you're attracted to? It to to you you to it. If I can actually say a sentence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's all <so> good. Um, <laughs> it was a it was a little bit of that, and it was a the, the environment. Um, I've always loved being outdoors and hiking and that sort of wilderness experience. Mm-hmm. And the other part that attracted me to it was reading that I was going to be the solo doctor. Right. So at that point in my career, I'd always been in the hospital system where there's constant backup um, with other doctors, nurses, video, everyone is around, you've got all of the bells and whistles. And the idea of challenging myself to see could I stand on my own feet as mm. a doctor, um, that was really appealing. And then particularly knowing that I had the backup and the safety of the colo medicine unit. So even though physically you're the only doctor down there, you still have this network of support. I was like, well, this is a to test. I've always wanted to be this doctor that worked in remote places in extreme environments. And this is the opportunity to see, can I actually do it?
1: And it, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it's got to be scary on some level, but, uh, you know, like, if- the, the logistics would mean that they're not going to send somebody down there unless they they have the belief that they're going to be able to do the job. So, there must be some, you know, must get some confidence, <laughs> at least, you know, they've been pleased. <laughs> they reckon you can do it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's, a, it's a rigorous process um, to get selected. So, the application form is about 30 pages um, mm. as you detail your experiences across all different areas of, of medicine, mm. um, as well as. Submitting your CV and references. And then, um, based on that, they direct people to go down to Hobart for an interview. And it's about a half day technical interview that you have where they um, discuss with you. So, this is the, the Polar Medicine Unit, you know, doctors discuss with you different clinical scenarios how would you manage certain situations? Um, I guess to get a, a real feel of how do you thought about and do you understand what you're getting yourself into, Yeah. but also do you have the clinical knowledge and experience to, to deal with these potential scenarios?
1: When your name came up as someone to interview for this podcast, uh, I think I said it at the top, mm-hmm. I was quite excited because <laughs> the work that you do is really, you know, it's something I'm quite... Quite interested in. There's a real, as I, I think I mentioned a moment ago, there is a real sense of adventure and frontier element in in, in what you're doing, and the kinds of places you're working in. And in my mind, at least, as someone who's never done either of these things, I'm about to, to re- reference, but that there are parallels to things like space exploration in terms of you know how remote you are, you know the isolation, the the, the, the completely different life, and the kinds of um, science and, and and opportunities to learn that, that are involved. But also, you know, you know, if things go wrong, how how difficult it is to get assistance. Um, you kind of you know. It's a completely different world. I, what's it work, like working in the kinds of extended missions? You mentioned a moment ago. It's, how long are these missions for? Conditions? Um,
0: so, so it's around 12 months right. um, and sometimes it's a bit longer. Depends and, on the weather. And, you know, it depends on the weather or other circumstances. So mm. like for the guys this year down there um, with COVID, um, mm. that's extended their, their stay. Um, so usually it's about 12 months. So it is a summer doctor position at Casey. They have the two doctors there mm-hmm. um, because they've got the, the Blue Eye uh, Runway. Um, so that position is about four to five months.
1: Right. But generally speaking, it's about a 12 for, for this kinds of um, work that you've been doing. You're there for a, a, a good year. What's What's Absolutely. it like working on these kinds of extended missions? We're away. You know, you're away from you know, home, family, friends, Um it's a completely different existence. What, what's that like?
0: Um, it's it's really interesting balance between being quite mundane, as in it's regular medicine, it's regular work. You fall into your, your rhythms of any job that you do. Mm. But at the same time, you're in this incredible environment um, that you get to interact with, you get to go out into the field so some days you're like, yeah, this is just me doing my job. And then other days you're looking out the window going, oh, my goodness, I'm hearing this <laughs> incredible place. Um, So it is it is really quite quite different from from working at home, though. Um, probably the, the biggest difference, um, even so much actually the environment, but the fact that you're living and socialising with your patient. Right. So even in rural medicine in Australia, yes, I might, see someone that I've seen in clinic down at the local pub or the grocery store yeah. or whatever. But in every single day, I have dinner, um, I have lunch, I go watch a movie, I sit in the bar, I go to the library, I go out in the field, I'm with my patients. So that's definitely one of probably the bigger challenges is maintaining that, that balance of separation.
1: Yeah, that must be exceptionally hard. I was going to ask you a little bit later about in terms of your, your role in, in working with those people as well, because I understand you've got... You know, uh, assist, You know, people who who are sort of nominated assistants um, that, that are able to step in and help you. And I'm sure there's it's first aid is is um, vital for anyone working down in a situation like that. But um, what's your role in terms in terms of that area? In terms of do you do you need to, to run drills and situations and simulations with with some of the people you're working with to make sure that you, you know if you do need help, people are going to know what to do and some of the things you might encounter down there.
0: Definitely. Um, training is a, is a huge part of, of the day-to-day work um, that you you do down in Antarctica. Um, so it sort of gets divided up in a in a few different ways. Um, there's the first aid um, and familiarity with all the field first aid kits, the oxy boots, the AEDs that are on station that you run everyone through. Um, then there's a bit of um, field first aid that you you cover with people where you work with the field training officer. Um, running scenarios and simulations about how we would look after and rescue someone if they got injured out in the field. Yeah. Um, and then there's the training that I do with the lay surgical assistant. So those are the four people um, from any other train on station um, who nominate um, to, to be your assistant an additional pair of hands um, if someone is critically unwell or injured on station so, for those guys, they'll go down to the Royal Hobart and do a two-week training course there, where they learn how to maintain a sterile field, scrub in for theatre, do basic patient observations, do some anaesthetic monitoring, um, and then when we get on station, we then continue that training. So, usually every fortnight, we have an afternoon session, yeah. um, and we'll run through a number of patient scenarios and things to keep everyone fresh and familiar. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, what can you describe? What the station look? And which, which I, I should clarify exactly because there are, there are a few stations um, mm. operating. Which one are you heading down to? And and can you sort of paint a bit of a picture of what sort of a facility are we talking about here? How big is it? How sprawling is it? Is it small? Yeah. <laughs> um, what's What's it like when you get there?
0: Um. I'm up to, to Morton Station. Um, so that's the, the furthest one away from Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the, the buildings on the continent are roughly the same design. They look quite like big Lego buildings because they're all colour-coded right. um, and separated apart from each other. The medical facility is in the Red Shed, which is, I guess, if it's the home base of station. Um, it's where the kitchen is. It's where everyone's um, sleeping quarters are. It's where the recreation space is, um, is often um, a little sort of basement-y kind of area that, that's got a lot of the heating and the cooling and that infrastructure to keep keep the building going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the far end is the medical facility. And that um got a sort of main reception open space area where the people first come in. Um, and there's the self-help bath. So anything that you might buy for yourself at the supermarket. Um, like paracetamol um, or throat lozenges or things like that, mm-hmm. um, people can come and shelter themselves to off those shelves um, while the rest of the pharmaceuticals are kept away and they can pack just in a, in a separate room. There's right. um, a consulting room um, that my office is sort of placed in and we've got like any GP office back in Australia, um, we've got an examination couch or sure. the usual medical equipment in that. And then off the side from that room is a small lab um, that contains our sterilizer for sterilizing all the surgical equipment, Mm -hmm. Um, and it also contains all of our lab-based work. So for our point of care testing um, equipment, we keep that in there. Um, Off the, I guess, usually opposite all of that, past that reception area, um, is a a two-bed patient ward that's got a bathroom in it Uh and then we have an operating theatre and a scrub room and some storage rooms as well so it's quite a big space to look after. I
1: imagine it's but yeah I guess you've got plenty of time in your day to to be doing that. you know if things things are going well when you don't have a lot of patients to look after (laughs) hopefully you've got time.
0: Absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah. So
1: I mean, how about outside the facility? You mentioned that you know, obviously, that there's work going on outside all the time. Do you, what's in your role? do You get to, to get to get outside much, and what's what's it like out there? I'm sure it's more than just ice and snow, as far as you know, I can see. It, from what I understand, it's quite beautiful in some in some areas.
0: Oh, and look, it, it's absolutely beautiful everywhere. Um, <laughs> part of what keeps bringing me, me down there, and each of the three stations are really quite different in their geography and environment. So I've been fortunate to winter at all four of the Australian stations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Macquarie Island in the sub-Antarctic as well. Um, and they're all so different and they're unique and beautiful in, in their own way. So Mawson is known for its high mountains um, and the catabatic wind. So every morning it blows about 30 to 40 knots um, and it comes rolling down the hill onto station. So we don't have as much snow hanging around on the ground because that gets blown away by mm-hmm. it. But we do have a lot of what's called sastrugi, which is where hardened by the wind, the snow forms these really rock-hard, almost ice banks. And then over time, the pressure will actually turn that into solid ice. Um, and then there's lots of exposed rock where that hasn't hasn't built up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Morton's quite rugged in, in that regard. Um but it does make it very, very beautiful. Whereas when you go to Davis, that thing, the Vest Bowl here, which is part of the, you know, I think it's about 1% of Antarctica, is permanently ice free. And that area in summer, it, people kind of describe it a bit like a mining camp because it's all these rocky, rugged hills, there's um, big dikes of black rock that run through it, hypersaline lakes that never freeze in winter. So you get this incredible view of. Snow, as wow. far as the eye can see, but then this shimmering, reflecting lake. Um, so that's a great place for walking um, and, and exploring all of those fjords. And then you get Casey, which is the snow station, uh, which I absolutely loved because we get this incredible powder snow that falls everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so you can go skiing and do all the usual snow activities there. So they're all beautiful in their own way. it.
1: Okay. I mean, do you? The, the, you describe it so beautifully it makes me want to get down there myself one day i don't have any qualifications so i never will but um do you i mean does everyone sort of fall in love with it the same way i mean i'm sure everyone must on someone but i'm just wondering you know given some of the you know the, the extreme environment and the the length of period that people are away from for do people do you, do you get people getting anxious when they get down when they when they arrive when their reality sets you know obviously there's a lot of preparation as you say and then Interviews and everything else to try and screen to make sure you're getting people who are going to be able to be mentally and emotionally prepared for, for for the work and for the life down there. But is it still it must still must be hard to to properly emotionally prepare people for for some of the situations, whether it's homesickness or, or whatever else that, that that might pop up. Is is it is it hard at times for for, for people working and living down there for such um, uh, long periods?
0: Well, oh, no, definitely. Um, it's one of those things that I think for for most Australian it's so foreign to us to be in this cold, snowy, mm. massively open environment. Um, and so some people certainly do struggle. I've, I've, I haven't had the experience but myself, but heard the anecdotes of people that have got down there and gone, this is not for me. And I think that's a really courageous and a brave insight because you've done all of this, so to be able to actually stand up and say, you know what, this is not right for me. It's not right for the exhibition, I'm here. Mm. and they've gone home. That's a a courageous call, but I admire them for doing it. Um, And then you do get people that, Because you're there for a long period of time, they're having a great time, they're enjoying it, but then something comes back, something happens at home um, that they're not there for, that they would really love to be there for, Mm. like someone passing away or a significant illness. And if that happens in winter, we're isolated for nine months, and. It's one of those things where think you can understand intellectually, yes, I can't get home. But then when the reality actually You're living that, yeah. that, Yeah. That that's when I think it, you yeah, know, it, it can become hard for people. And that's a big part of my role as the station doctor is, is supporting people through that when it happens.
1: Can you describe to me a bit about, you know, what talk us through what what a typical day might be like for a for, for you know? Things are going well. No one's no one's falling over and hurting themselves too too, too badly. What what's a sort of yeah. a typical day like for you? I'm I'm having read through some of your your diary entries that you, you popped up online in the in the um, AAG site that that you um, on some of your previous trips. I understand there's a lot of admin and you know um, stock taking and and, and um, updating things. What what's what's the day like?
0: Free. So, yeah, that's very true. That's a big part of my day. <laughs> um, so I. You're very flexible as, as the doctor. Um, you don't so much have the same set hours as other people, but I do try and keep the same hours because obviously when you're in the office, that's when people are going to be able to come in and see you because they do try and give you your own privacy. So maybe not necessarily come and see you if, if you're not sitting there in the like, don't want to disturb Kate in a room. Yeah. Um so yeah, I'm sort of up in the mornings at the same time as everyone else. It is about sort of 7 8 o'clock that we start work. Um and so I'll go in, turn on the medical facility, usually give it a bit of a clean. There's an incredible amount of dust in Antarctica from the closed oh, air conditioning yeah. system. Oh uh, okay. um, huge, dusting even <laughs> massive part of stuff that I never would have thought about until I was down there and went, yeah, okay. So right. give things a bit of a dust <laughs> and, um check the emails there's usually quite a time difference um particularly at than that's the most significant one um the time difference back to kingston so um usually i'm I'm doing emails or that sort of work for the first hour or two of the day because you'll catch people while they're still at work back in kingston so anything that needs to be done get it sorted that way um and then we have a, a regular maintenance schedule for um, so all of our medical equipment because it's not getting used as often as mm. it would in a clinical hospital back in Australia. To keep it working, we turn it on, run functional tests. So I'll pick a few of those jobs for the day, run through those ones, um, usually end up seeing maybe one or two people um, dropping in often for sort of minor medical issues or um, band-aids have run out of one of the first aid kits down in their workplace, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and then um, often I go for a bit of a walk-around station just to see what everyone else is up to because sometimes people maybe don't feel it's serious enough to come and see the doctor in the office, but you pop down, have a chat with them in their workplace. moment, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. They sort of check in or they, they go, oh, gosh, yeah, I do need a hand with this. Can you hold the other end of the tape measure or whatever. (laughs) Generally (laughs) can be so useful. (laughs) That's it. I try to be a bit useful for the station. So, yeah. And then end of the day um, is around sort of 4.35 o'clock and um, set everything down and kind of go back and join the social areas with people and have a bit of a chat there.
1: How about, I think we we touched on it earlier in conversation about some of the um preparation that you know obviously because we were talking about some of the stuff you've been doing just recently obviously gearing up for, for your next one but i just can you talk us through um what kind of preparation and training is involved because it's not just clinical obviously when obviously we can get to that And there's a lot of st- stuff that you, that you need to, to 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 be able to do being that you're the only physical you know, doctor on the physical um in that situation but how about in terms of you know because there's a lot of um you know I saw one of the one of the training um things that the, the, the AAD put out that you had done where you had been out sort of abseiling and doing sort of retrieval um processes and things what what's involved in terms of outward you know getting out in the wilderness and, and preparing you know for the physical environment that you're going to be working potentially if things do go wrong outside of those buildings
0: Yeah, so it's a big part of our our training so that does start um down at usually down at Kingston at head office so Um, usually about uh, six weeks, roughly, um, before we're due to sale. Um, All of the trades and the whole group that are going to be the winter team come together and and start the training there. So it begins with um, an introduction to sort of community living and behaviours and what we sort of want to see, how do we want our station to run, um, those sorts of getting to know you and familiarisation activities. Mm. And then we do some structures. Um, SAR training um, beginning then so a lot of the theoretical stuff around um, how to actually run a search and rescue how to do different search techniques when to sort of worry when to escalate things um, and get a basic overview of a lot of the equipment that we have available so that's everything from radios and GPSs and maps of the station um, through to the more technical rescue things so the rope the carabiners the hoist system that we've got for the stretcher And those sorts of things. So then, once we're down on station and everyone's settled in, the field training officer um, will take everyone out on field and travel training. And that's awesome. It's so much fun. It's (laughs) a small group, (laughs) usually three other expeditioners and the field training officer. And it's basically like school camp. Um, And it's awesome because you go out in vehicles or on foot. You practice navigation, you have to sleep out in your bivvy bag um, with your survival view so that you've got an understanding that if things really go to custard, I can actually survive and cope if I jump in my sleeping bag in my bivvy bag. Um, you learn stoves and how to use different stoves and equipment, um, different navigation um, using map and compass, using our GPS, using the, um, the specific GPSs that we've got in the Haglund, which is our tracked vehicles Um, and you get a bit familiar with the routes and other hazards that you might come across so how to see where crevasses might be um yeah all those sorts of different antarctic hazards that probably most of us aren't used to dealing with (laughs) 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 and then once everyone's done done that um we then move on to dedicated SAR training so that getting familiar again and getting that practical experience of how to set up the hoist system, Um, if someone does fall down over a cliff that we have to do a a vertical rescue, how to do a a rescue on station and and make sure we don't miss any buildings or any locations that somebody might be, um, if they were injured and not able to answer a radio. Um, Yeah, so there's there's lots of training that sort of happens continuously throughout the year to keep us always prepared and ready in case something happens. And,
1: I mean, talking, you know, about the experiences you've had, there must have, there must be times when when that training comes to the fore. Can you talk about? I mean, obviously, I know there's probably you know limitations of how much you can you can say, but you know what what are some of the experiences that you've had where you've had to call upon that that training where you 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 really had to sort of extend yourself.
0: Um. So it's come across a, a number of of times, and and that may be things like. Um, when I've been out in the field and even though we've looked at the weather forecast and we've we've planned the trip, unexpected weather has been in, encountered. Um, for example, in, in Casey, we call it the Casey fog that comes down and you can be in complete whiteout condition sort of within 15 minutes. So yeah. that training is how to drive a vehicle along the track, where it's safe um, to do so, following just the GPS to get back to the harsh or back to station. Um, there's been times where we've had to, to look for people that have um, missed radio calls for various regions or they, they have become separated from a group in a blizzard, And these have always all had good outcomes, which has been great. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the incredible things about the Australian program is, yes, things have gone wrong, um, but you look at how long... The Australians have been doing it for for over 50 years, and it's it's really incredible how long we've been there and how safe it it is.
1: How many people are down there? Because obviously, you, you mentioned that there's um, three or four. Was it, I'm getting myself confused. It's three or four stations you've got down there. How many people are, are on these bases, and and what other bases are also outside of the Australian program? What's what's the whole sort of setup like in terms of that?
0: So, um, each of the Australian stations on on the continent. Roughly between sort of 15 would be a, a minimum number um, to run it. Um, up to sort of 25 or, or 30 over winter, um, which may be having that many when there's either a lot of winter science projects going on or if there's any um, major building work that are, that are going on over over the winter. Sure. And then in summer, Casey and Davis are the two biggest stations. So you can have about 100 people um, on, the, on those stations over summer. So they can be really quite busy uh, with lots of people coming and going out in the field um, because that's the time when um, we've got helicopters and we've got that ex- and bonching and that accessibility for the scientists mm. um, to get out to those places that are obviously a lot trickier um, to get to in the middle of winter. And more than just because it's a little bit more isolated, um, it tends not to have the same really large summer population or at least it hasn't sort of over the last 10 years or so. And that station might go up to 25 or 30 over over the summer period. And then Macquarie Island um, has a station about 18 people or so over winter. And then depending on what's happening for the summer there, that will, that will increase um, up to about 30 to 40 people.
1: What's the sense of community like i mean obviously you, you mentioned how well you get to know each other and how it <laughs> you know, tr- can get tricky in terms of you know living and living and working with, with with your patient base especially a small number of you know one of the smaller bases as you were just saying 15 to 25 odd people what's the what's the sense of community like in the bonds there must be some incredible bonds that, that are built up between people working and living in such close quarters for such a long, long period of time
0: definitely um I'm still in contact with uh, a lot of expeditions from my my different seasons and made those kind of friendships that I think sort of last forever you don't always see each other <laughs> so much <laughs> because you might be living um, in different parts of Australia or I stay contact in contact with um the field training officer for my first season and we did a winter at market together as well and nice. Ten years on from that, we picked up like we hadn't you know it had only been a few weeks since we'd last seen each other so you definitely form those those bonds and, and connections um with people and it is that very intense um life changing ex- experience and being with people that I guess understand firsthand and know that sort of shorthand of what you've been through. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a mm-hmm. special connection and friendship to have. Um, but like any time that people are living in a closed community, um sometimes, it's, you know, you get all... irritated with yeah. each other. <laughs> I,
1: was <gonna> say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, I mean what does that um, I mean how how that must be especially difficult with this, isn't there? There's nowhere to go.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I think of being one to that is, of how a lot of this and certainly how I manage it is um you know, reflect it. it's, it's a bit like being in a big share house that right. it's often the little stuff that drives people mad because of the selection centers and the types of people that are chosen and the code of conduct and things like that. Yep. You don't have problems there's you know, really major stuff um, happening as people being terrible to each other. It's more things like someone that doesn't like someone who puts, um, butter on their knife and then fix it in the Vegemite jar when it is butter yeah. in the veggie is That's the kind of stuff that people get. <laughs> um, or, you know, leaving crumbs in the toaster or those kind of All things. All the same things um, that we deal
1: with in, you know, in a, normal, <laughs> a normal home environment, exactly. but except it's just, it's, it sounds like it's obviously heightened because of the the, the situation that you're
0: in. It is. And, it, and I think the fact that it's, um, you know, very communal with all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and so people tend to negotiate it quite well. Like station meetings are really useful for addressing those those issues um, and not letting it build up. And sometimes learning in yourself to just let something pass and let it go. Like it might drive you mad that somebody shoes with their mouth open, but that person isn't doing it to annoy me. That's just that person meeting yeah. that person. <laughs> so having that insight into yourself is, is this something I want to make an issue of or is this something I could adapt and cope with? Yeah. Um, I, I think that's the way to get through the season, but also, yeah, the whole community runs run that way. And, and then if something is is building up, the community is often really aware and that's where a good station leader makes a huge difference because they'll have an awareness that that's going on and community members will have raised it with them. And so before it becomes a big issue, it will be addressed and resolved.
1: So. I mean, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but how? I mean, how do you guys um, let off steam? There must be you know, obviously there 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 are limitations to what you're able to do compared to, to what you might be able to do at home. But um, obviously, I'm, I'm sure a lot of other opportunities to to do much more exciting and interesting things that, that that we wouldn't be able to do here. What what? How how do you let your hair down at the end of the day, or you know, what how do you and spend a weekend if you've got some downtime? <laughs>
0: Um, we've got excellent opportunities to get off station. So all of the Australian stations have field huts. Um, on the continent, you do need to go with one other person as a safety measure, whereas sure. on Macquarie Island, um, you can get away by yourself. Um, and all of the field huts are in really beautiful and interesting locations. Um, so there's always amazing stuff to do. So how you choose to get there is up to you. You could walk there, you could ski there, you could ride the quad bike, take the haglin, do a combination of all of the above. Right. Um, and then, um, yeah, you, you go out to the field hut and then you might explore that local area, do some photography, see some animals if it's summer, and they're around or take some photos of auroras um, or go to the hut and play board games. <laughs> <there's lots> of, <laughs> I was going to ask you about, you yeah,
1: the, the, the group sort of <laughs> social activities and things, you know, you guys get to have parties and celebrate, you know, special occasions, that kind of stuff.
0: Definitely. Hutties are a, is part of I'm station life. Um, so often theme nights are a really big one. Um so the chef will um do food for that thing, which might be a, a style of cooking or it might be a medieval night. They're often really popular on station because <laughs> we do get a few ping on the sent sure. down to it. <laughs> um, uh, movie night, um, quiz night. Um, Often we get into TV series that, as a group, we'll watch it together, and people might make treats like popcorn or chop tops to eat while we're watching that series. So, Game of Thrones has been a, a popular one because <laughs> um, there's quite a few to work through sure. for that. Um, sure. So, the last few years, that's been big. Um Yeah, so look, people kind of make their own fun that way. <laughs>
1: How about, I mean, you sort of touched on it, but sort of generally speaking, what, what have been the absolute highlights for you? You've you spent five winters there. I'm sure you've got an absolute ton of stories we could do, a whole series of podcasts on, I'm sure. But what what, what, what have been the, the, you know, the, the, the real standout sort of experiences and moments for you that you look back on?
0: It's so hard because it's one of the things that, that constantly changes because I've been so privileged mm. and so fortunate to have all that time down there and of course I still want more, sure. um, but and look, nearly all of it has been involving wildlife or, or being outdoors, so um, seeing the emperor penguin colony um, when I was at Morrison the first time, and there's just hundreds and hundreds of male emperors with the eggs on their feet, and it, it's a sunny day, you can see the steam rising from the heat of the group, and they're all cooling, and it's, the moment is being I've literally stepped in a David Attenborough documentary. Like this is you could not realize this is this was amazing. Um a of sitting watching Auroras and seeing those lights dance above you is just phenomenal. Um and even the smaller moments, like um I spent a lot of time there at Maca just on the beach very close to where the medical facility is mm. and Just having things like animals come right up next to you because you're being still. So having the birds or the elephant seal pups come right over and be like, oh, what's this curious thing on (laughs) our beach? Um, There's there's just been phenomenal. So to get to spend time in Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic, it's a privilege. And I know it sounds very cheesy, but I have genuinely loved every moment I've had down there.
1: So, given that having how do you go from that to, to returning home? It must be incredibly strange adjustment, readjustment, I guess, to make. Um, is, it, is it exciting when you finally get to come home or is it a letdown? Is it, what's, it must be weird for a while.
0: It, it definitely is. Um, I think gets easier from the first season, um, but there still is definitely a, a transition. Um, it's very noisy when you come back to Australia. <laughs> Wow. It's incredibly noisy. It's incredibly smelly. Um, there's no scent in Antarctica. Um, like unless you're live near a penguin colony or a seal um, that's given birth, and there might be an odour to that um, in summer. But most of the time, it's frozen. So there's not really an odour. So you come back to Australia. And I always remember it's this amazing experience of yours, sailing up the Derwent, you can smell the gum trees. Wow. And... It's just, it still like coming home, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. And you, yeah, get all of these smells sell, and odors and it settles down. Like you take the, uh, me about a week or two of just being really quiet and going, you know, don't go to the shopping center straight away. Right, yep. <laughs> don't fill out tools piles because um, it can feel a bit overwhelming. And then you transition back into that and it's suddenly like, I haven't been away at all. Sure.
1: So, what are you, I- what are you looking forward to most? You're due to to leave. Was it February of next year, or, or is it earlier than that? That you're you're due to, to be taking off.
0: Yeah, so we're due to sail at this stage um, on the twenty seventh of January. January right. um, yeah.
1: So what's um? I get how how long is that? How long does it take to get down there on by boat?
0: Yeah, so it's five boats. So um, the new icebreaker the Nuiya isn't quite ready yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to be on a charter vessel, uh, right. which is the NP Everest. Um, so that will be this season is a little bit different um, because we've got that that charter vessel. So um, we'll be going to Davis and Morton on the one voyage. Right. So it could take two weeks. Um, that's about the rough time that it takes to get from Hobart to Morton. Uh, depending on the ice conditions, we may go yeah. to Davis to, to do their resupply. So we're sort of looking at a void anywhere, I guess, between sort of two to three weeks up right. to maybe six weeks, um, depending on the conditions. So
1: that is that that part of the um, equation aside. Once you're back on base, <laughs> what what are you most looking forward to on on this? This will be your sixth winter. What's what what? What new things are you excited about, or, or, or is it just a matter of getting back to to what fifth start must be starting to feel like home for you?
0: Yes, yeah. um, oh great! It'll be my fifth winter. Sorry, sorry fifth. not my 6th. Okay. No, that's all right. Um, I'm very excited. This is the first time I've got to go back to a station, so I did the tour of all the other st- of all the stations before repeating it. So seeing the changes that have happened and how different the environment will be this season, mm. um. I think that's really going to be be quite exciting. Um, to get back and see the emperor penguin colonies again is, is going to be huge. And the other reason why I applied this year, and it's a purely selfish reason, is that um, I'll be turning 40 oh. um, in 2022. And so I have my 40th birthday on the ice wow. um, with yeah. a bit of a motivator for me. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I can imagine. <laughs> So finally, before I let you go, um I always like to ask the people I'm talking to on this podcast that um for people who might be interested in, in following your path or at least you know looking into to 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 explore some of the opportunities and involvements that you've had in 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 polar medicine what what advice would you get what what are the things they really need to think about and 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 how do I, how how should they sort of approach it? What's a good place to start
0: i <laughs> I absolutely um. Look, no, the, the polydocs are um, a diverse, a very diverse range of doctors. And so the, the best advice I really can give is having a diversity of experience, particularly outside the metro health system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a job that's got more competitive um, over years, which is a, a great thing. So it means lots of people are interested in, and great doctors are, are keen um, to get theirs out. Um, so to make yourself really competitive for that would be do a rotation in in a regional or a rural hospital, um, have that chance to sort of stand stand on your your own feet away from the from having the CT scanner the MRI immediately available, um, and look at Acram To be honest, mm. a lot of us are with Acrim training. But that said, there's also a number of of doctors that are doing um, emergency medicine, um, we've had people that are anaesthetic trainees um, or anaesthetists down there. Um, there's also been an obstetrician-gynaecologist, um, and um, one of the doctors is also a general physician. Um, and the common thread with with all of us is working in regional or rural Australia to have that more austere experience before sure. we've gone south. Yeah.
1: Look, thank you so much for for your for your time for being able to make time. I, I, all the best with your preparations in in the coming months and, and for your expedition. I, I'd love to if we if we, I'd love if we get a chance to to have a chat with you once you do get back in um in a year and a bit's time. <laughs> if we, if, we just, if um but yeah. In the, otherwise, have have, have, a, have a wonderful expedition and and um thank you so much again for your time.
0: Oh no worries. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting Antarctica.
1: Another huge thank you to Dr. Kate Closer for her time. And if you are keen to track her progress, I uh, definitely recommend following her on Twitter. She's under the handle Dr. Underscore Polar Bird. Or just search for her name, Kate Closer, K-L-O-Z-A. Before I go, another reminder that the CCIM 2020 conference event is now a virtual event only. Um, it's still happening December 12th and 13th, but it will be a virtual event now. Um, you can register for that one at creativecareersinmedicine.com. Just follow the links to the events page and you can secure your ticket. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back soon with more interviews and episodes.
0: Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence, and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water, and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present, and emerging.